Hello and welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you for joining Ray and I. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll try to do our best to answer them during the show and certainly after. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and other publications. And frankly, one of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, he doesn't have lots of robots following him, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> I'm worried hey, about Bob, my this is wonderful. Happy Friday. <laughs> I know today's like Twitter purge day oh, no, this whole man. week. But anyways, um, I'm excited to have my co-host, Bala Afshar, um, as you know, one of the uh, top followers on CIO and CMO still. In fact, I think he got more followers. Uh, everyone got purged, but he got more followers than everyone else. But uh, one of the top writers as well on Huffington Post in the past, ZDNet today. And uh, more importantly, it's not about us. It's about you on Friday the 13th, episode 113. We are rolling <laughs> here. And who do we have today? <laughs> we didn't plan that at all. <laughs> what a privilege. We have two amazing uh, guests joining us at the first segment. We have Michael Scott, founding partner and co-founder of Underscore VC. Michael started his first software business as a teenager, spent 21 years as an entrepreneur and the last 15 years as a venture investor. During that time, Michael has founded, worked with, and invested in startups and created thousands of jobs and billions of dollars of value. Along the way, he has also mentored and taught four years at Harvard University and created the Startup Secrets series. I highly recommend that you check that out. As an entrepreneur and an investor, Michael has focused on breakthrough technologies and disruptive business models, including open source, Cloud, IoT, emerging domains like blockchain, mixed reality with virtual augmented reality and artificial intelligence and machine learning. He's also served and is active on several public and private boards. Please follow Michael on Twitter at MJSKOK. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I don't know how the heck anybody has an introduction like that because it's all downhill from here. Yeah. You know, it's funny, for both of you, I had to purge. In fact, I decided not to include Richard as an Olympic skier because we only have 20 minutes. But yeah. alongside <laughs> U.S. Olympics 2006, uh, we have also Richard Delude, principal uh, and investment manager at Underscore BC. Richard manages Underscore BC's deal process, conducting anal analysis and diligence on potential investment opportunities. He's led investments in areas of blockchain, AI, ML, XR, and serverless technologies. He started as a programmer, turned to an entrepreneur, now at VC, and he enjoys digging in alongside entrepreneurs in the portfolio to help them create value for their customers and realize their vision for what the company could do. You can follow Richard on Twitter at R-I-C-H-D-U-L-U-D-E. Welcome, Richard, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Paul. Great having you both. Hey, welcome. Hey, welcome to the show. You know, this is uh, wonderful. I mean, people are waiting in line for that Harvard iLab series all the time, Michael. Richard, awesome stuff as well. Um, let's start with underscore VC. How, what's the thesis? How did you guys get around to starting it? You know, tell us more about what you guys, like what caused you guys to found this? Well, the, the first important piece is we nearly didn't because we were both looking at VC going, why would anybody do this crazy industry? It's, it, you know, entrepreneurs actually find it to be 
painful to take VCs money. So we started the listening tour, actually. We spoke to over 300 entrepreneurs and we said, hey, look, we were going to start a new VC firm. How would you like to see it done differently? And they said, well, capital's a total commodity. So find us some way to actually value what we really have, which is very limited, and that's our time. And give us resources that we couldn't get access to. And we realized, you know what, we could go build the next Andreessen, but frankly, they did that great already. And we thought there's a different model here which we could use, more like an open source model. We could go and create a community of what we call core experts that is able to actually come in by domain, by stage, and by function to help our entrepreneurs build their businesses along the typically seven to 10 year journey. And we have several hundred of them. Typically, they get involved giving their time, and in which case, we reward them by giving them shares from our investments. So it costs the entrepreneur nothing. Or many of them also want to invest, and so they become partners to the entrepreneurs. So now we are all you know a lot. You know, a lot of people don't even describe you as a VC today. They call you a community, and and that's a testament to what you guys are doing. But uh, sorry to cut in on you. I just wanted to let people know that it's not even it's it's not like any other VC we know. So that's exactly it. And Richard, go. Our our thesis was that um, you know. Anybody who is working at a venture firm has a certain set of expertise, but the reality is the people who are building companies today are more equipped and even better to help you build those companies than any VC could ever be. And so the thought was, how do we align the people who are out there building real companies and give back full circle, whether they've been successful and you know want to reinvest or more specifically want to invest their time, which is really the, the scarce asset. You've been an early investor in open source, in cloud, certainly, um, I'd based on that 300 person listening tour, obviously you, you know, you're in the field and you're looking at opportunities for innovation. Um, you recently published um, a study or survey on blockchain uh, and uh, interested on your point of view in terms of, let's, talk, let's start with how mature is the technology? What were some of your findings in terms of uh, the, the, the adoption and interest in blockchain? Well, I, I think you've probably seen the headlines, right? Uh, you're seeing a lot of crypto, crypto, crypto. Unfortunately, a lot of that's really about price. Um, and what's interesting is underneath that is this thing called the blockchain on, under these cryptocurrencies, uh, which is actually a very profoundly interesting piece of technology. Uh, it's been around on one hand for a long time. So when it comes to maturity, think of things like uh, Bitcoin and others. They've been around since you know 2009 when what happened was called the, the Genesis block. And since then, you know, they've added blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. So on one hand, you know, the, the Bitcoin uh, blockchain is a very, very long one. Uh, but on the other hand, I would say a lot of the more interesting stuff is starting to happen uh, and entrepreneurs are pushing to the space and kind of tinkering with the boundaries of what's actually happening. Um, and so to that end, you know, when we think of it, um, there's a, you're trying to figure out timing in, in the VC business. And so there's, uh, you know, we asked this question in that survey, which was the you know, industry-wide survey uh, we called the, the future of blockchain. Uh, um, kind of where are we versus the dot-com bubble with things around crypto and blockchain? Uh, and kind of the, the takeaway from that was that people think we're in kind of a, a 97 type timeframe, you know, a little bit above, but, uh, you know, kind of building towards a, a momentum, some really interesting projects getting started. Uh, but a lot of hype, a lot of, you know, uh, growing noise in the space. But within that, there's some real grains of truth that are really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we, and to, to put too fine a point on this, if we're in 97, you know, we're in the boom period, that's awesome. But the bad news is there's going to be a bust. 
Um, and what we think is exciting about that is if you look at this, it'll probably be a boom bust and then a much bigger buildup than anybody ever thought. I remember sitting in the valley in the, in the late 90s and people were scoffing at the idea that there'd be a $15 billion online advertising industry. $15 billion is less than a quarter that Google does these days. I mean, it's a joke. Uh, but that's what's probably going to happen for blockchain too. You know, we're going to go through this boom, then there'll be the bust, then it'll probably be way bigger than we ever thought. But probably take a lot of time, a long time before we see the infrastructure in place that you can then build the services and the applications and then ultimately industries on. And a better user experience. No, we're definitely seeing that. Yeah, I know, and we're definitely seeing that and hearing that, especially in blockchain. And, and you're right, it does feel like 96, 97, you know, all the, the tools are crude. There's tons of conferences to go to. The people who go to the conferences don't know what they're talking about. The people actually building this stuff are hiding out, you know, getting stuff done. It's, uh, it's kind of fun to watch. But, uh, but this is what's interesting about blockchain, right? It is, it is seductive. It is entertaining. It is um, people are like, this is going to be the next internet. This is internet too. Uh, what does it mean for you? And, and what does it mean for the enterprise? Yeah, well, how about, uh, I'll take what it means kind of generally in the technology landscape, and then you take enterprise. Sure. Okay. Um, you always give me the hard ones. I know. Yeah. it over here. You know, it, I think um, it's easy to think of it in the concept of um, centralization, right? So today we we usually have kind of this single source of truth. Uh, you know, Facebook and it has all our data on its servers. Equifax. Uh, many of these things, we kind of continue to put data and data and data into them. Um, part of the profound thing of a, a blockchain is that it gets all of that same benefit as let's call it a single source of truth, but does it in a very distributed way. So almost nobody really owns it. There's kind of no center of this thing. It's a network maintaining it and delivering it. Uh, and so for that sense, uh, you kind of have this imbued trust in this network that what is happening is actually true and is trustworthy because everybody in the world is validating it pretty constantly. And so it gives you the sense of, um, you know, trust without any central intermediary kind of lending that trust or us putting our faith in. So. And, and in the enterprise, what we're seeing is pretty obvious, which is that everybody's tinkering a bit at this stage, but there are very few enterprises who figured out the use case. Now, here's a place where we totally disagreed with our survey. Uh, which is a little embarrassing. Uh, but, you know, so 70% of people, basically 69%, said that they thought the enterprise had very low ability uh, or literally were unable to implement blockchain technology. So we agree with that. We've seen that. You know, whenever we talk to enterprises, they're super early in this process. But then they say, well, we're going to solve this problem. Three-quarters of them uh, say, oh, we're going to solve this problem by doing it privately first. We're going to build private blockchains. We think that is total BS. I mean, that's a bit, a bit like yep. what happened cloud, you know, uh, Valley, you and I have known each other a long time. We've been following cloud. That's like saying private cloud is the cloud. <laughs> Not happening. You know, yep. we know that a private cloud was just a, you know, stepping stone on the way to the public cloud that really gives the economies of scale. We think the same thing will happen here. It's, mm -hmm. it's not going to be the, you know, innovation that comes from uh, the private blockchains. There's probably a place for them, you know, just like there is for private clouds. Uh, but the real key is going to be applications that can only work on the blockchain. In other words, what are the apps and problems that we can solve that would not be possible without the blockchain? And that's a tough question. Not many people answer it. Uh, we'll put our money where our mouth is and just give you an example of, of two entrepreneurs sitting outside the door we just backed. They came out of a mobile analytics company, very successful. And then they said, you know, hey, this blockchain thing is going to completely blow us apart because when you look at the scandal of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, nobody wants to give their data anymore. And so this idea of analytics 
not happening if we, we don't solve that problem. So they're about to develop what will be an enterprise distributed data, uh, plat data management platform. So that effectively data that's collected doesn't belong to anybody. It's distributed, but it's accessible by permission by the blockchain. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be very interesting. And we think there's a future for that. That opens up all sorts of opportunities for data sharing that is actually sanctioned, approved by users to their benefit so they can get what they want targeted them, but not abused by uh, large central corporations. So lots of opportunities like that still to come, I think. That's exciting. So in your, survey, in your survey, I think the respondents, and these were practitioners, academics, thought leaders, I mean, best and brightest in this space, uh, identified 35 unique industries that are potentially susceptible to disruption in the next five years. And there was a list of industries, financial sector, micropayment, banking, supply chain, crowdfunding, healthcare, voting. Of all the industries that you captured, the 35, what are your thoughts in terms of which industries are gonna be early adopters and maybe potentially disrupted in the next one or two, not five? Or is that even a possibility given the scale and the infancy stage of, of blockchain? No, I, I think there's a lot of industries that are going to maybe not even be disruptive, but even, you know, accelerated and, uh, you know, supported by the blockchain kind of tailwind. Uh, ones that are clearly low-hanging fruit are kind of financial services. Um, with, with this um, kind of value network that you get from blockchain technologies, you can actually do kind of routing of uh, financial transactions. So think of it as a if this, then this. If I don't uh, make my mortgage payment on my Tesla, or excuse me, my car payment on my Tesla, uh, you know, lock the doors, right? You can program that instead of somebody getting in the way of actually having to tinker that and do that activity. You know, Ray could be locked out of his uh, Tesla here. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> no, or maybe he's locked in right now. We just, you know. <laughs> Ray is smart. He'd he's hack into it somehow. <laughs> Well, oh, you know, the, the smart the smart contract rejected me, so uh, I couldn't figure it out. And I have an ETC code. I don't have a, I don't have a coin to, to actually pay for my, my bill, so they, might, they rejected my ability. <laughs> but hey, you know, but, the, but related to like, I mean, there are caught industries, and in your survey, that was kind of interesting. Um, it also kind of surfaced up indirectly use cases that we see, right? And it seemed like, and, and maybe this might be incorrect, but maybe you can uh, shed some light here. Um, it looks like provenance of data is important. Identity is important. The smart contracts and the value exchange are also very important aspects of this and, and the need for decentralized P2P models. So they, it seemed like that. I pulled those four things out of there, but that might not be um, what you'd seen in the data, but it, it seemed like that was an emerging trend. What do you guys, what do you guys think about that? This is part of the, the challenge of it is it's actually many things and many applications. So if you pull on each one of those strings, they all have very interesting use cases uh, attached to them. Um, another one you didn't mention is kind of this concept of digital scarcity um, mm. allows you to even create things like, you know, virtual properties that are, are digital. Uh, so let's call them digital baseball cards and things like that, which has actually been one of the more early adopting areas as well on the consumer front. Was there a controversial part to the survey where, you know, you just had two camps yeah. opposing points of view? How many of those? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we talked about one of them, right, is this concept of decentralization. There's nobody kind of controlling and moving the strings in here. Um, the irony is to get that decentralization, there's this activity called mining that needs to happen. It's basically a, a reconciliation of transactions that happen. Um, and the irony is that 
that is becoming more and more centralized because it's kind of a scale game, right? To, to run these computers, you need bigger computers yep. than everybody else and uh, run them faster than anybody else. And so that becomes a scale game. And so you have centralization of this. Uh, and that causes yeah. another problem, which, which we saw a lot of controversy around, which of course is energy consumption and the efficiency, yeah. inefficiency of the blockchain. So there's a lot of controversy about how will that problem get solved? Will it get solved, for example, at layer two, or will there be new kinds of proofs of, of, of work, proofs of stake? That's by no means understood yet. Um, and frankly, there's a lot of different approaches that are in conflict with each other. Yeah. We have Heather Clancy, who's gonna be uh, in our last segment, and there's no one that's written more about energy sustainability for Green Biz and Fortune and other publications. So looking forward to her point of view. Has yeah. this survey changed your investment thesis in any way? Were there any ahas that, well, I mean, you're, not that you would share with, <laughs> but. No, we, yeah. you know, we're open source style firm, well, we share everything. Yeah, I mean, sure. we have to articulate, and part of the, um, the purpose of this survey is to flush out what are the interesting opportunities, right? right. And highlighting those for entrepreneurs is a, a great thing because we're happy to go back to those entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I think the, the things that we found are um, supporting or, or potentially even hindering blockchain right now as opportunities or these, uh, the concept of scalability. You know, all of us are trying to do many transactions. The network just couldn't support that right now. So entrepreneurs yeah. going after that. Um, I think in terms of just pure infrastructure, if you have these um, you know, assets somewhere, uh, they need to sit into some custodial solution. And so this is just pure infrastructure that needs to be built out. Uh, same with, you know, trading of these instruments, whether it's, um, you know, one thing for another, you still need a, a piece of technology to do that function. So you might have mentioned you made an investment. Yeah, so we, we invested in a company called Commonwealth Crypto, uh, two very prominent cryptographers. Commonwealth Crypto. Them, um, you know, incubate in our offices here. Uh, you know, very oh, wow. Um, now they're up to 10 people, but what they're going after is uh, non-custodial cryptocurrency trading. So the thought being, oh, nice. you have to send um, your assets to one of these exchanges if you want to trade it for some other token. Um, and the problem with that is I actually have to lend the, the trust to that exchange. And, you know, they could get hacked. You see these news articles all the time, you know, $400 million missing, gone, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this, this team <laughs> is a protocol that allows the trade of every cryptocurrency in a way that's non-custodial. So nobody takes that risk. And that came directly out of the survey. People, people point that's out that's awesome. That. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Well, hey, your, your other point about proof of stake and different ways to get the proof of stake, that is definitely changing. And so mm -hmm. I think that there's some interesting things in the survey. How can folks actually download the survey and some of those top line results? If you go to um, futureofblockchain.org, uh, it's all there, uh, and I believe it's also under underscore dot vc slash blockchain. Terrific. Ah, terrific. that's right. So, hey, real quick, startup scene in Boston. What's it like, right? Is it hot? Is it picking? Is it, what are certain categories? Is this the blockchain place? Is it the biotech place? Is this all crypto? Is this, you know, where are we going to figure out quantum? Like, when you think about investment theses, what, what's Boston known for, and what's the scene like? Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, I would say it's vibrant, definitely has like a, a resurgence in its own way. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the reasons is because a lot of the key infrastructure is here. Yeah, I mean, we, we not stated the obvious, <laughs> we're sitting in the richest pool of university and college talent anywhere in the country. Not oh, yeah. 
And it's just amazing. There's been this incredible resurgence, as Richard said, of entrepreneurship, whether it's you know, new classes coming online, new facilities like Harvard iLab or at MIT, Northeastern, et cetera. So what's fun about this is Boston actually has some deep-rooted tech here, you know, the sort of tough tech from things like the engine at MIT that's coming on. Uh, and we really love seeing this, which is that entrepreneurs are finally saying, hey, we don't need to take a job anymore. You know, instead of having a kid, let's start a company. Uh, and we, we were joking about this. thing to do in Boston. So I think we're going to see some great companies built yet. And, and not just biotech and robotics and, you know, AR, VR, but in, in some of the areas that nobody's really thinking about, like you mentioned quantum, for example, it's, it's the applications of that. So what could we do when we really have quantum-like computing available as utility? People are starting to think about problem solving that, that was just unthinkable before. That's amazing. Is that a coin or not a coin or has it been juxtaposed? Just kidding. We are here. <laughs> Episode 113, Michael Scott, founding partner and co-founder, underscore VC. You can follow him at MJSKOK and Richard Delude, principal and investment manager, underscore VC. And his Twitter is Rich Delude, D-U-L-U-D-E. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you both. What a, what, this, is, this is Ray. When I say Friday is my favorite time of the week. Those two are amazing uh, experts and they're incredibly accessible, whether it's through social or in person. I mean, they're incredibly generous uh, thought leaders. And one of the other reasons why uh, Friday is my favorite time of the week is you get to learn from some of the best and brightest CEOs in the world. And our next guest, Carla Freedy, CEO and co-founder of Invoice Pay. Carla is chief executive officer, co-founder, and also member of the board of directors with over 20 years of experience in management, finance, marketing roles in both large and early stage companies. Along with uh, the founding team, Carla has grown Inmost Pay into a leading B2B payment automation software company. Prior to finding, uh, founding Envoice Pay, she was the president and CEO of privately held Zivez Corporation. You can follow Carla on Twitter at K A R L A F R I E D E. Welcome, Carla, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Great to be here. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. <laughs> Happy Friday. Hey, thanks for being on the show. You guys are transforming what's happening with AP. You guys, you and uh, your co-founder, all left the same company to do something different. Tell us why, and tell us about Envoice Pay. So Invoice Pay lives in the world of B two B payments, which is very different than consumer payments. So what we do is we yes. transform the way businesses pay their suppliers, both domestically and internationally, and make it a very simple automated process. So B2B payments, unlike consumer payments, in the last 20 years, consumer payments have received tons of investments. There's been a lot of innovation. Companies like PayPal, Stripe, and Venmo have really transformed the way consumers pay. But on the business side, that same level of innovation hasn't been there. And so on the B2B payment side, as astonishing as it sounds, the predominant payment method is still a paper check. And so B2B oh, yeah. payments, $36 trillion market in terms of payment volume compared to the consumer market of about $4 trillion in volume. So it's an incredibly large market that's still in the really early stages of evolution. That's amazing. That number is staggering. And it the is. fact that it's 
paper transaction paper. <laughs> in 2018 is mind-numbing. So, so what kind of businesses do, do you work with? Are they, are they specific industries? Is it a particular size of a company? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we work with large enterprises, and that makes sense because they're the ones that have the biggest problem making payments. So our customers, think about customers with multiple subsidiaries or locations that are spread across different hierarchies and need to ha make payments across a complicated infrastructure. So our customers are making maybe 100,000 payments a year across 200,000 invoices to 10,000 suppliers. And so that complexity comes in in the sheer volume in the management of that data and that process. So we have those large enterprises, um, one of them uh, in the Bay Area, a very large construction firm, Swinerton Builders, you may know those guys, they're a very well-run construction firm. Some high-tech companies, um, Glassdoor, Refinery29, customers of Invoice Pay, and the largest private school district in the country, Kamehameha Schools, is also an Invoice Pay customer. That's terrific. Wow. That's huge. Now, one of the things that people love is, is really the payment command center idea, right? The ability to put everything in one location and, and get things started. Uh, talk, about, talk about what's the advantage of uh, being able to do that. I mean, today people are, I mean, they've got payments all over the place, right? And they don't understand how to do payments, taxation, right? They've got to handle it all and all across different ERPs. It's kind of a mess, right? So talk a little bit about that payment command center. Well, it is a mess. First of all, it's, it's hard to imagine. I just want to give you an idea of the mess. So customers are paying by paper check, but kind of the first electronic methods were through banks. And so a lot of customers may be making a few payments on a purchase card, and maybe they're making a few payments by ACH to their bank, but now they have three different workflows that all require a lot of manual steps involved with them. So when they move to electronic payments, that's simplified in one flow. And what Invoice Pay does is provide a way for customers to have control and visibility and traceability across all those payments. So on the front end, we're doing a lot of work to make sure our customers can have the experience of kind of pushing pay and sending that to Invoice Pay. And on the back end, our payment command center comes into play because we do the services on behalf of customers. So all the questions that may come up from a supplier about what's been paid, what, what the amount is, what the invoice is, invoice pay takes that all off our customers' shoulders so they don't spend time on those low value added tasks. And the customer has that ability to look in one spot across all the payments they're making. Yeah. Carla, when you go into a company and, and, and it's your first engagement <laughs> engagement with them. Is it this chief information? Is it the chief operation? Is it the chief financial? Who's the executive sponsor for invoice pay? I mean, who, and, and how do you describe how technology is changing the, 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 how businesses handle payments? I mean, who's the person that's most interested in this and actually ends up being a sponsor for you and brings you into the company? Yeah, I think, I think it's changing pretty dramatically through time. And it, it's also dependent upon size of company. So typically the person who is the decision maker rolls up to the CFO. The CFO may ultimately be the decision maker. But in a very large enterprise, the CFO has given the task to maybe a VP of finance or even somebody who's a director who's been in accounts payable a long time to go out and look for solutions to change their environment and the way they're making payments. And we're seeing this done really by 
when there's a new CFO that comes into the building, they'll look around and say, why the heck are we paying suppliers this way? Isn't there a better way? And we also see companies that are high growth companies, right? Companies mm -hmm. growing rapidly, they don't want to add headcount to accounts payable and, and understand the power of sort of technology and cloud-based solutions to transform the world. So we see a lot of tech companies. We see companies with new CFOs. We also see companies that have new private equity investment, where private equity investors are demanding a more efficient back office and process, and those companies often uh, adopt account, uh, accounts payable automation solutions like ours first. Finally, there's a category of businesses that just have a lot of suppliers, where their suppliers are a fundamental part of their business, and their suppliers are changing a lot. So think construction and how important construction is to the suppliers are to the delivery of that construction business. And in that world, there are actually suppliers who have driven the need to move to electronic payments, who've said, we want more options, we want to be paid faster, um, we need you to pay us electronically. And in some cases, that has driven those first customers that have adopted electronic so, payments. So, so it's more than efficiency and accuracy. It can actually be a competitive advantage for you to modernize, automate, and then ultimately even use advanced capabilities like machine learning to have optimal schedule of payments and, and, and workflow and, 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 and transactions. Sounds like suppliers are not demanding companies to, you know, start doing things in the 21st century, <laughs> you know, rather than <laughs> writing checks like my grandfather used to do running a business 100 years ago. So, okay. <laughs> right. Hey, so man, I, I think... just wrote a manual check. <laughs> I, know, I just cut like, a manual check last week. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so, you know, when you go to electronic payments, it's, there's an obvious first benefit, and that is it costs 10 times less to do an electronic oh, wow. payment than it is to write a check. Wow. Right. So that business example I gave you, somebody making 100,000 payments a year is probably spending about 400,000 to make those payments. As soon as they go to electronic payments, that's gonna, that cost is going to fall to 100,000. But I think a lot of the benefits are in what you said, Bala, and that is in the process and the efficiency of the process. So sort of the dirty little secret in accounts payable is all the things that go wrong. So when there is a problem in payments and it's a manual process, Somebody has to find that problem and dig around and resolve that issue. So moving to an automated process, you know, dramatically reduces those errors and then makes it sort of somebody else's problem to solve them instead of the company's. So now they can redirect those resources to higher value added tasks for their business. So it's really, I think it's about process and efficiency and bringing it, you know, businesses into the 21st century. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There, there was a large tech company, I won't name whom, that was uh, double paying signing bonuses uh, because they couldn't track uh, <laughs> the HR records. <laughs> so, so yeah, so they were, they were having a little fun with that um, in, in terms of the, the technology. Um, you heard a little bit about blockchain uh, in the other area and, and kind of like these exponential technologies that are popping into place. Um, what are some of those exponential technologies for you um, that are transforming how businesses are handling uh, B2B payments? Yeah, so B2B payments, just for context, B2B payments are still really early on. Mm -hmm. So if we think about FinTech's entry into B2B, it's really very recent. So Invoice Pay started in 2009 and we're one of the oldest FinTech companies in the space attacking payment automation. But it's really maybe 5% of the market has moved to payment automation. So there's a huge, huge future in B2B payments in technology in terms of 
moving customers from these sort of very manual, you know, high touch point systems into automation. I think in B2B payments, there is a huge uh, transformation that's gonna take place as payments really become the backbone of buyer supplier relationships. And what I see there is happening is freeing up capital both on the customer side and on the supplier side. So for example, customers being able to take advantage of early payment discounts when they can see them, when they can pay faster, um, suppliers being able to understand when they're being paid and being able to access capital earlier if they want to on that payment. So as payments really become yeah, the back of, of the supply chain, I think there'll be dramatic differences. I also think there's a huge opportunity for the blockchain in payments and it's in international payments. So international payments are just so difficult because yeah. the international banking system is a system of decentralized banks that are working together. And so what you have is multiple middlemen when you try to send a payment from point A to point B. The blockchain has the promise of taking all those middlemen out of it and having a customer be able to send money with visibility, transparency from point A to point B. So the blockchain and international payments is huge opportunity. I was going to ask you about the faster yeah, yeah, faster settlement process. I was going to ask you about future payments, but I think you just answered it uh, with, with blockchain. So, so I'm wondering, uh, and you know, we're fortunate, Ray and I, we're, we're super fortunate that we get lots of CEOs uh, that come on our show. But still, the challenge is there are few female CEOs that come on our show. And frankly, it's rare to have a female CEO in the fintech uh, space. Uh, at least that's my point of view. Um, what has been your journey to becoming a CEO um, of a fintech company? Um, first, I don't think of myself as a female CEO. I just think of myself as a CEO and co-founder. So it's, it's kind of um, interesting to me. Invoice Pay has probably half our workforce are actually women. And so we, we have this little world that we live in that, that that's not unusual for women in leadership roles. I think in my journey, I started out in accounting and I was working for KPMG thinking, how did I end up here? This is not really what I want to do. And I went back to business school at Harvard. I got an MBA and switched into finance and marketing and technology companies. So I went to work for tech companies, both really large ones and small ones learning as much as I could. Mm. I always wanted to start a company and it really didn't matter if it was in technology or cosmetics or sawdust, you know, that didn't really matter to me. Um, it was the ability to sort of drive decisions forward and uh, be the master of your own destiny. So the opportunity for electronic payments came along in 2009 and just a lot of things came together and we, together with our co-founders, jumped on that opportunity. And, and you, were you familiar with the, the payments industry or, or, or yeah so we were trying to this other company solve the payment problem and it seemed and i think because we didn't have a deep experience in payments we looked at it like wh why is this problem here it makes no sense at all we beginner's definitely, mindset a beginner's yeah, mindset yeah. right exactly and so we attacked that problem huge market big opportunity 09 was a tough time to start a company right because the world was shutting down oh, like yeah. And Very Very Portland, Oregon isn't a big spot for venture funding or capital. So it was an interesting time to raise money and start a company. But it forced us to kind of focus on the customer and spend all our, our energy 
and money on improving our product. So it, it, I think it allowed us to innovate a lot faster. That's awesome. That's a great story. Wow. And let's talk a little bit about Portland. What's the startup scene like? Um, are you getting the right tech talent? Are you got the right ecosystem, the network? Um, is a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement in the area? Yeah, so Portland is, Portland is a great place to live. And so Portland is a community that a lot of young people are moving into. And so Portland's kind of known for our great uh, microbrews, our great yep. pinots, our great coffee. And there's a massive influx of young people into Portland that is terrific for the high tech community in Portland to be able to hire the talent that's kind of migrating out of the Bay Area and North. So Portland is a good place to start a company. I think it's an even better place to grow a company. So when you're growing a tech company in Portland, there's a lot of the workforce that's super dedicated to what you're trying to do and wants to be part of something. So it's a great place to grow a company. So it definitely has the community and all the pieces for great companies to, you know, grow up and to be very big companies. That's terrific. Uh, advice at two levels. Uh, advice to CEOs of, of, of new companies uh, based on lessons learned, um, uh, and then advice to uh, undergraduates or graduate students that are looking to start their careers. How would they, what do they need to do to best position themselves to work for you? Um, so, two, two advice so, from my okay. level. Yeah, okay, so the, the advice for people that are just starting out, mm -hmm. I would say that um, it's gonna take longer than you think. And that for people that are starting, I think it's really important that people come with the expectation and think about an eight year time horizon and think about those first couple years as requiring a lot of investment. And I think the most important thing is to get a use case of a customer into market as early as you can and use your own funding or seed funding if you can before you go to the venture community. So I think it's really important to have proof points to eliminate a lot of product risk and to have customers up and moving before you think about investment. Um, so if I was advising um, young entrepreneurs, I would say, save your capital, be prepared to invest and to dig in and to drive customer success before you think about taking financing or venture capital money. For young graduates starting out, I think um, first, FinTech is a great place for people starting out because it's growing so rapidly. There's a lot of opportunity and there's an opportunity for people to um, hire outside maybe their comfort zone and hire a lot of diversity in their workforce. So I think FinTech is a great market for that. I think for, for people early in their careers, I think it's really important to seek feedback, right? Yeah. So feedback is always really hard to get and sometimes it's hard to give. But those people who really want to get better and learn, if they're always asking for feedback, are they always seeking to get better and learn from their environment, I think those are the people that progress in their careers very rapidly, right? They, they take a 10-year horizon and turn it into a five-year horizon because they're constantly trying to learn about what they could do better. Wow. That is Tremendous sick. startup and mentorship advice. Yeah. So coming from Carla Friedi, CEO and co-founder of Envoice Pay, you can follow her at K-A-R-A-F-R-I-E-D-E. 
thank you for being on the show and uh, good luck with the startup and the company. It's bigger than a startup. You're like, you're like the legend in the fintech industry. So, <laughs> you've been around yeah. for a while. So. You were yeah. terrific. You were terrific. That was awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you come back. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you, Carla. So. All right. Take care. Awesome startup CEOs, and now, oh my God, just disruptors. Who do we have? <laughs> We've got a disruptive crew. I don't, I don't know how we're going to have keep this like uh, last segment in line. There's going to be no line with this group. <laughs> so. I am less disruptive than my co cohort. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are, you are a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee into Disrupt TV. So it's our pleasure to have Heather uh, Clancy back on Disrupt TV. Heather's the editorial director for Green Disc Group and co-author of Niche Down, which we're going to learn uh, about in the next 20 minutes. Heather's an award-winning journalist specializing in transformative technology and innovation. Uh, as editorial director of Green Biz, uh, Heather chronicles the role of technology in enabling clean energy, sustainable business strategy, and low carbon economy. And she does it in a way where Ray and I can actually understand. So it's a beautiful, simplifying complex topics and, and technologies. You can follow Heather on Twitter. She's a must follow on Twitter at Green Tech Lady, G-R-E-E-N, T-E-C-H-L-A-D-Y. Welcome, Heather, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back. And we also have with Heather, Christopher Lockheed, host of Legends and Losers podcast, and also co-author of Niche Down and, uh, and also Play Bigger, uh, an, an incredible uh, prior book. The Marketing Journal calls Chris uh, one of the best minds in marketing. Fast Company called him human exclamation point. That's unbelievable. I consider Ray a semicolon. Uh, Bill Walton, who helped the Celtics in 86 win a championship. I am, after all, dialing in from Boston. Called him a quasar. Economic, the Economist calls him off-putting to some. We'll find out. <laughs> and many, many more. I, I had to cut his bio down. Two hours. Uh, off-putting to my wife. <laughs> a former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO has been called godfather of category design, which is something we're going to learn about as well. You can follow Chris and other must follow because, frankly, we only invite people that are good on Twitter to be on the show at uh, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. Welcome, Chris and Heather, to disrupt me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, and Chris didn't lose 200,000 followers yesterday, so I guess we're okay with that. <laughs> but but you're you're, you're you're alumni. Followers to, lo to lose. <laughs> <laughs> you're alumni, June 10th, 2016. You're on episode 19 for your book, Legends and Losers. We are now back. And uh, the best you know, we're now back. of any of your guests ever. Uh, he's at the Hall oh, of Fame. The best backdrop. <laughs> It's not even a green it's the screen. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Santa Cruz. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, this is not a green screen. That's it's not a green screen, screen. although it's a green cactus. But it's not yeah, a green which is a new addition from my, uh, my Uncle John. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, God bless him. Tell us about the book. Why did you decide to write about being legendary? Heather, what, what, what is about this niche? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so I, have, I just have to say, I'm going to point at Christopher, because he got me into it. Um, but, uh, you know, by way of background and I, you, Ray, you appreciate this cause you've, you've written and, and Vala and I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. I've actually been asked before to write, um, to co actually mostly ghostwrite with others. Um, and, 
Uh, I've known Christopher for, we figured out the other day, about two decades. Um, he's one of the people who I had to translate at my, one of my former jobs. And uh, we've just always been um, <laughs> simpatico, if you will. We just always had great conversations. I felt like we could finish each other's senses. But the long story short, um, Christopher got it into his head and into his soul that he wanted to um, translate some of the great ideas from his category design um, ethos and methodology and, and thinking, his philosophy, um, for, the, for the, uh, the small E entrepreneur. I love how he puts this. So there's big E entrepreneurs, like the big tech, you know, tech valley, Silicon Valley tech giants, um, but there's small E entrepreneurs all around us. They're everywhere. There's small businesses in your community, in your state that are um, entrepreneurs in their own right. They, they don't have the funding of, uh, you know, of the, of the Valley, but they are out there designing their own niches. Um, they are and the best ones and the most unique and the most successful and the legendary ones are the ones that absolutely embody their niche. They claim a niche, they embody a niche. And, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Chris, your version. Why did you, why, why write the book about becoming legendary? Well, um, a couple of reasons. Number one, ever since Play Bigger came out, the number mm -hmm. one question I've gotten, uh, Vala, is how does this notion of designing your own category apply mm -hmm. to your career as mm -hmm. an individual or as a small business, to Heather's point, or a youpreneur or solopreneur, as so many people are today? Because mm -hmm. in Play Bigger, you know, the, the folks at Forbes were kind enough to, to call it the uh, how-to guide for building the next Google, Amazon, or Facebook, which, you know, is a huge compliment. But if you're, if you're somebody who's not doing that, how does it apply to your personal career, your smaller business, your small e-entrepreneur business? And so that was sort of the impetus for it. The other one, and Heather touched on this a little, Vala, we live in a world that teaches us to fit in. Right. And the truth is, it's the people who are different who make the biggest difference. And so Heather and I wanted to really shine a light on individuals as well as small entrepreneurs who are doing very different things, who as a result, uh, if, you, if you'll allow me, became known for a niche that they own. And there's this fallacy that what there is to do is personal branding. And I want you to know before I say this, I'm not a violent person. But if I hear personal branding one more time, I'm going to punch somebody in the face. You have to have a brand to be personal. Well, personal branding is bullshit because what branding is all about, and I get to say this as a three-time CMO, it's about screaming your name, screaming your name, screaming your name. Well, the truth is it's the niche that makes the brand, not the other way around. What makes Picasso Picasso is he's, he's the, the category designer of cubism and it's only when the idea of cubism as a new niche a new genre if you will of art takes off that picasso's brand becomes valuable and all these idiots espousing personal branding they just want you to puke your name everywhere and the truth is without cubism picasso's nothing and so niches make brands not the other way around and heather and i wanted to create a book that uh, shined a light on people who were different, who were making a difference by carving out their own niche in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Ray, so Ray, I'm gonna ask you a question. Um, 
do you think do you think we've done a good enough job with disrupt tv to create a niche I mean, and, and I and so I, I I don't I need to fully understand the thesis to be able to, to answer that question. But or maybe from Heather and 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 Chris, what what can we do better? Because all we wanted to do when we started this two years ago, and now three hundred guests later, was just to invite people in a safe, comfortable environment and and learn. But I'm not sure if if, if that's our niche or or we need to do more. Any, feedback or am I thinking about this the right way how can we be unique and different the way Picasso was uh, you know very specifically identified to a niche I don't know if we've done that with disrupt um, but maybe reading the book will help us do that <laughs> well no but let's, let's let's talk about some of the interesting characters in the book right that that do do that and then and there might be some great <laughs> lessons learned like when you think about modern folks that are the modern niches and, and the folks that are creating it who comes top to mind, Chris, Heather? You're, you're giving me all the floor here. <laughs> you're way smarter than me. <laughs> no, I'm not way smarter than you. Okay, so uh, this is a bigger, bigger example, but uh, Spanx. Sarah Blakely. Yeah. yeah. So what did she do? She cut the bottom off her pantyhose, and, and that was her sort of original inspiration. But then she went out and figured out a way of making that um, real for women, like making it, I mean, frankly, I mean, I, it's something that, that I think about and this, I'm, I'm using a, a female example with three men. Very interesting. Um, but, <laughs> but in all seriousness, this woman, um, felt so strongly and she had no, she didn't do any market research. She didn't, she didn't, um, nope. she just went out and figured out that this was a problem that, and that's part of it, right? You're solving a problem that some community has that no one else is interested in. It, it, it's not like you don't go out and say, oh, how am I going to build the market share in here? You're, you're actually going out and saying, this is a problem, and this is my solution to that problem, and therefore I am, and, and that problem um, in that particular instance was, I want my, pan I, I, I'm told that I have to wear pantyhose, but I, and, and I, I must wear them, but, I, but they're not quite fitting right, and they don't look right with my pants, and, it's, and I like toeless sandals. So how do I deal with this? So she was like, well, why isn't there a product? You know, eventually, so that was her problem. And so she came out, we won't spend any more time on her, but there's also, um, a, there's tons of examples. I'm gonna give our sort of most um, intellectually and, and passionate, the one that we, that both Christopher and I feel s most strongly about uh, is John's Crazy yep. Socks. And um, oh, yes. I'm cry again, Christopher. Ah! Um, I know I can't get through talking about them without crying. <laughs> so those of you who don't know this uh, this story, it's it's a uh, a company on Long Island founded by a father and son. The sounds ordinary. The son is a, a young man who has Down syndrome, and all his life he's loved crazy socks. He's loved them. They're part of his personality. That he's always been interested in this, and he took his class in, in his school, and he said he came home one day and said to his dad. I can start a company. I can, I can create this enterprise um, and we should do this. And his father was like, hell yeah. You know, this is an absolutely amazing thing. And so it, it's, it's, did anyone need John's crazy socks? <laughs> do you need John? I mean, I do now because they're so cool um, and they're just amazing. And you know, because of what he does, what the way they structured the company, you know, some of the proceeds go to different foundations. Um, but then they, they were absolutely brilliant in how they went out and attacked the market. 
you know, uh, and Christopher, you, you know the background on the marketing a little bit better than I, so I'm going to throw it over to you. But, but, tell, but talk about the, the sort of the lightning strike that happened and the way they, they got on the map. The big mistake that uh, people make in marketing is they do peanut butter marketing and they just sort of spread their resources evenly. Um, legendary people realize that in order to stand out, you need to really focus and you need to have a disproportionate amount of activity in a concentrated period of time, this notion mm -hmm. of a lightning strike. In addition to that, uh, why not um, do what you could think of as a trend jack? If there's something going on in the world, why not grab hold of that and turn it into your own lightning strike? So in the case of John's Crazy Socks, they found out, oh. for example, that uh, President Bill Clinton, President H.W. Bush, as well as Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, very handsome and sexy, um, all loved snazzy yes. socks. So at various different times, they sent each of those world leaders or former world leaders, as the case may be, a box of snazzy uh, John's crazy socks. They also, by the way, have a uh, pair of um, Donald Trump crazy socks that has hair that you can actually style. Um, and uh, they have Justin Trudeau socks. Anyway, they ended up getting a ton of uh, free, free PR, if you will, because, for example, uh, George H.W. Bush fell in love with the socks, was wow. photographed wearing them. They had, they, John's Crazy Socks, had a literacy sock with these kind of cool drawings of, of books and so forth. Wow. And it turns out his wife, Barbara, that was one of her big causes in life. And so H.W. Bush actually wore John's Crazy Socks, the literacy socks, to her funeral. Wow. And then when that happened, the, the, the John and Mark give a tremendous amount of profits to charitable causes, including Special Olympics, Down Syndrome, and others. Um, and so they converted that sock into a charity sock, and now all the profits of that sock go to her foundation for literacy. And so they're a great example of niching down. They have become the category kings, if you will, of crazy socks. As Heather so aptly wrote in Niche Down, you know, if you want, if you want white uh, gym socks, don't go to johnscrazysocks.com. Um, and at the same time, they've been incredibly savvy about this notion of uh, grabbing hold of things that are going on and turning into a lightning strike. And the third mega point why we love them so much um, is, listen, a lot of us who feel like we're different feel like we don't fit in and that whatever makes us different is actually a liability that we sort of grew up on the island of misfit toys. It would have been very easy for John or Mark or their family, um, you know, to look at John's situation as a liability. They chose not to do that. As, John, as Mark shared when he was on Legends and Losers with us, let's look at what John can do. And John never thought of what held him back. He just looked at what he could do. And so they made him the face of the company. And by focusing on that, it's the ultimate of what makes entrepreneurship great. Because many of us who chose an entrepreneurial path chose it as a way out, not a way up. And in the case of John, nobody was going to hire him and put him in a job where he could be fully expressed and really e express and, and access, if you will, his own potential he had to create his own job with his dad and that's what they did and so they're an example of turning your different into a massive asset and they're an incredible example of niching down picking a very tight niche crazy socks and then being incredibly innovative about how to design and dominate that niche over time 
And I think what you brought up a really important point, Christopher, is don't go to them for the white gym socks, because that's an important part of niching down is knowing what not to do, knowing to say, knowing when to say no to that account that looks really, oh my God, if we just nailed that deal, oh my God, the revenue, but it's not right. Knowing when to say no to that, knowing when to stick to your, stick to what you do re really well and, and stick to what you are. Um, that's such an important part of it, um, like the, the whole concept of that. A um, couple of other examples from my world of, of sustainability, Method, the, the, the company that, that does all oh, the yeah. um, cleaning products, you know, they just, they wanted to get all the toxics out. But the other thing that they did that was really important is, 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 is others are copying is uh, putting things in concentrated formulas, taking the packaging and shrinking it down. TerraCycle, the entire company was founded on the idea that garbage isn't garbage. You can make this thing into some valuable thing. And, and so now they, they started out making worm poop, like taking, taking stuff and making like worm fertilizer, uh, fertilizer out of worm poop. And now they're in working with all these major, huge companies, Procter & Gamble, to take what would be considered waste and to turn it into value um, that didn't exist before they, they created that. And, and before they designed you know, recycling existed. What these folks did was, was absolutely turn that model into something of their own and, and design a, a category that they absolutely dominate. These are all incredibly uh, inspiring stories. So, you know, it's about taking risks. It's about claiming new ground. It's about being comfortable, not fitting in. In fact, aspiring to stand out. Do, do you need supportive truth tellers? Do you need a supportive network? In this case, father and son or in business? I mean, how important is the people around you that give you the space to be creative and to break ground and to stand out? Have you, have you found a common thread where these legendary folks had a, a, a great network around them? <laughs> okay, Heather. <laughs> so uh, absolutely, yes. Our friend Eddie Yoon, who we talk about in the book, he has he creates this distinction for people in business. There are certain people who are uh, mercenaries, hired guns, if you will, primarily motivated by money, and then there are missionaries. And if you if you're a mercenary, when you really come up against like insane adversity, most most mercenaries tap out. Missionaries will crawl through flaming glass. And so, um, you know, the legends are, are, are missionaries, right? So that's kind of point A. Point B, uh, we believe that E and CEO stands for evangelist. And, you know, Vala, uh, uh, Benioff is probably the greatest example in the enterprise space Absolutely. now, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. For 20 years, bam, 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 no software, cloud, 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 SaaS, 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 bam, bam, bam. And like, it, it doesn't matter what you ask him. It's like, hey, uh, uh, Mr. Benioff, uh, what'd you have for breakfast? Well, as you know, no software. We had no software for breakfast, right? For 20 years, right? And so, so with that said, if you're a missionary, you're an evangelist, one of the key things you do, and we talk about it in the book, is you create your own ecosystem. Whether you're a realtor and you join a local networking group so that you can get leads, or whether you're yeah. Benioff trying to turn people into other missionaries on the cloud mission mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at whatever scale you want to talk about it. You know, Heather and I are now missionaries for John's crazy socks. Love we, that. We, we, we did, mm -hmm. we did a buy 
of uh, Legends and Losers Custom John's Crazy Socks, which I'm <laughs> stoked to send you guys. Um, and, and they are the official sock supplier to Legends and Losers, right? <laughs> and so we're, we are now, we now believe in their mission, right? And, and like Heather can talk about her favorite pizza joint, but like she's a, she's a, she's a missionary for them, if you will. And so however you want to think about it, whether it's at the highest level of Salesforce.com, building an ecosystem around developers and resellers and integrators and so forth at that level, or whether it's a small e-commerce business like John's Crazy Socks turning Heather and I into raving fans and referring people and talking about them every chance we get. <laughs> At whatever level it is, legendary category designers, if you want to design a niche that you can own, a huge part of it is that ecosystem, those partners, and those other missionaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's wow, This is great. We are getting... We're getting niche down uh, here with Heather Clancy and Christopher Lockhead, uh, editorial director of Green Buzz Group. You can follow Heather at Green Tech Lady, and of course, Christopher Lockhead at Lockhead, at L-O-C-H-E-A-D. And of course, more importantly, this is episode 113. You can get the book. Is the book out yet? So, or do we got to wait a little bit? Uh, next week, I think. All right. We are going to kick All that right. out the door next week if it kills us. <laughs> yeah, because I'm going away, dude. <laughs> well, we're getting the sneak preview of this. You know, Christopher, Heather, we got to have you guys at the conference with us on the book. I think we've got some good uh, – this would be fun to do. And so we'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But more importantly, thank you for being on the show on episode 113. Thank you for having us. Guys. All right, cool. Thank you. Happy Friday. Congratulations on the book. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, guys. You guys are awesome. Most legendary. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> or loser. We don't know. <laughs> losers. losers are great. Losers are great. We'll take them. All right. Awesome show. And who do we have next week? We got some really cool folks coming in. These are big thought people, big thought leaders coming through. Episode 114, next week's guests. We have uh, Nabi Raju, Thinkers 50 speaker and author on our show. Then we follow with Gene Bliss, founder and CEO, uh, customer uh, Bliss. And then we have Dr. Janice Presser, founder and CTO of Team Ability. So really three big thinkers, and they're all about building great customer experience, culture, and, and, and having- uh, And innovation. And innovation, and innovation, absolutely. So And innovation. Ray, wow, it's this is gonna be great wonderful. to uh, see you and you get to get out of the car after two hours. <laughs> but uh, closing, no, no, no. closing remarks. Is, you know, hey, this has been awesome. We are at a point where we've got um, the Business Transformation 150. For folks who haven't taken a look, take a look. It's actually one of the uh, top list of all the early adopters, innovators, pioneers that are actually innovating in the market. And more importantly, it's... Uh, it's it's the bt150 list so check it out uh this year's list is there they're all going to be at constellations event uh october 22nd to 25th uh, at the half moon half moon bay ritz so what about you Val? what's new on your end um congratulations on the bt150 list uh an incredible mix of expertise talent industry innovation and technology so uh one of the reasons i have uh, your conference on my must attend list is to uh, an opportunity to meet with really uh, missionaries as we just talked about and trailblazers and These are missionaries. so they're, they they're are. all givers they're all givers I don't think they can make the list 
if they weren't givers. And uh, and um, and and uh, yeah, so uh, that's that's uh, it's going to be an, an amazing event in, in in October. I'm going to the seat conference next week, so back on the road and uh, uh, find out what in the world of sports what's happening. And I look forward to uh, our show Friday. All right, well, hey, take care. Have a have an awesome Friday, everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Take care. See you, everyone. Niche down. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.